0: Hello, welcome to the podcast Psychiatry Talk. I'm Dr. Michael Bluenfield, the Sidney E. Frank Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College and currently in private practice in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, California. This podcast will examine various topics in psychiatry and mental health. This will include new interviews with experts in various areas as well as interviews I've recorded in the past. I will also personally discuss subjects that I've written about in my blog, PsychiatryTalk.com, or on new topics. Your comments will always be welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's mblumenfield, b-l-u-m-e-n-f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com. And now let's get going with today's podcast. I'm here with uh, Dr. Myron Glucksman, who is known as Buddy, Buddy Glucksman. He is the 34th president of the American Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry between 1988 and 1989. Uh, when did you get interested in psychiatry and then psychoanalysis and psychodynamic psychiatry? Well, first of all, Mike, uh, thanks for
1: uh, taking the time to, uh, to interview me. I uh, really appreciate it. I became interested in psychiatry when I was a medical student. I worked at a state hospital for two summers uh, when I was in medical school, and uh, that was my first introduction, basically, aside from psychiatry lectures in medical school, but that was my first uh, introduction to uh, patients. and uh, I was doing some research then um, uh, at, the, at this uh, hospital at a research institute there on schizophrenia and, and my job was to go up onto the wards and and collect urine samples and blood samples from schizophrenic patients and um, um, I know I, I, I couldn't help but see that you know these are people who were languishing who had been in the ho- many of them in the hospital for years and uh, shock treatment was the only basic treatment they got hydrotherapy sometimes and uh, I used to help with giving them uh, shock treatment, uh, and these were the days before anesthesia and muscle relaxants, and uh, they have grand mal convulsions. Uh, and I, I was just uh, uh, horrified at, at, the pr- at the primitiveness of the treatment. Well, but when I went back uh, two years later uh, to work there, Thorazine had been introduced, and many of these same patients had been discharged from the hospital. And, uh, uh, and, and a number of them were much more functional, and it was a miracle. Um, and that, that was my first uh, taste of, uh, of psychiatry and how changes can occur in our field.
0: So is this what got you interested in going into the field of It got psychiatry? me interested in psychiatry.
1: Um, I, actually, I did a, a thesis in medical school in my senior year. I did a research project in psychiatry and then um, in my internship I took a couple of months rotation on psychiatry
0: and where was your medical school and, and internship?
1: I went to medical school at the University of Washington in Seattle and uh, the internship at Downstate Kings County in Brooklyn where I spent two months rotating on psychiatry and then I went to Uh, Payne whitney Cornell Medical Center in New York for my residency in psychiatry.
0: Do you recall uh, any of your teachers during your internship at Downstate? (laughs) At Kings County Hospital? Yes. Um, Dickey? Bill Dickey? Dickey? Were were you there?
1: Yeah. Bill Dickey's, right? Bill Dickey's, yeah. He was very good. I remember him. Mm -hmm. And also the... um, um, Consul? No, no, no. Consul and, and also in the psychosomatic medicine. Uh, uh, Franz Reichman. Franz Reichmann. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they impressed me. Mm-hmm. And that was... Uh, and then I applied to, to go into a residency. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. And you did your residency at uh, Payne Whitney? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was that like?
1: Well, Payne Whitney uh, that had a very good reputation then, as it does now. It was uh, Oscar Diethelm was the chairman and had been the chairman for a number of years, and he was trained by Adolf Meyer at Johns Hopkins. Um, uh, so he was he was uh, I would say more or less biologically oriented, uh, certainly not psychoanalytically oriented, but very pragmatic.
0: So how did you how did you go to a residency that was biologically oriented? And yet, get interested in psychoanalytic and well, psychodynamics.
1: Well, fortuitously, several of my supervisors were analysts: uh, Helen Daniels, Leonard Straub, uh, Larry Hatterer. Uh, they were all analytically oriented, and uh, and that that really uh, uh, got me interested in the field. Uh, they were they were the supervisors for me who made who helped me to make sense of my patients and their
0: dynamics. And that's what got me interested in the field of analysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that made you want to get a psychoanalytic training? I wanted to get psychoanalytic training. And at that time, uh, also I think it was around
1: in the middle of my residency, my second year, going into my third year, uh, I felt that I myself wanted some therapy. And I, I felt that I wanted an analysis. So
0: the two kind of meshed. I could have my own analysis and, and get training. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you go immediately into psychoanalytic training after your, after your residency? I
1: started in my third year of residency. started during your residency. I started my third year of residency, and uh, I, uh, um, I considered a number of Columbia and New York psychoanalytic and white and, and, um, and New York medical. Uh, I chose New York medical because, uh, well, one, uh, Larry Hatter, uh, who was a mentor of mine and uh, a friend at, at Payne Whitney. Uh, trained there, and um, um, and it just seemed to me that it was uh, a much more eclectic, flexible institute than New York Psychoanalytic, where other people I knew went, and uh, I, I, that basically that's why I chose it. I, I think I was rebelling in a way because Oscar Diethelm and Payne Whitney were. It was a rather rigid atmosphere, and. And uh, I, 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 I'm perhaps I was rebelling against rigidity
0: and, and uh, doctrinaire thinking, and uh, so that was another reason. You know. So at uh, the uh, New York Medical College Psychoanalytic uh, Institute, what was the atmosphere at that time? At New York at at, at, at uh, New York Medical New York College. College. Well, uh, um,
1: Al Friedman was the was the chairman at that time. I didn't have much to do with the uh, the, de- the department per se. The medical school. Uh, we had evening classes at the Flower and Fifth. You know, at the old hospital mm-hmm. up on Hundred and Fifth and Fifth. That's
0: where the the psychoanalytic classes were. Yes, uh-huh. yes, and they had an
1: outpatient clinic too mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. up there. And uh, we took classes. It was three years of academic work. Uh, first year was mostly readings and Freud and so forth and. Second year was more clinical and continuous cases, and the third year was pretty much all clinical.
0: What about the orientation?
1: The orientation of our institute was, well, as I say, it was was eclectic. Uh, It was, uh, was, I would say, neo-Freudian in the sense that uh, um, emphasis was more on, um, uh, not so we learned about certainly classical theory, but also neo-Freudian theory, adaptational theory, uh, culture, the, uh, the culturalists, so-called culturalists, were also a, uh, a part of our institute. Um, uh, they were more in the spirit of, uh, of the interpersonal people at William Allenson White. Uh, and, and not interpersonal, just interpersonal, but taking into consideration the, the, the culture uh, in which people uh, were living and how that affected their, uh, their dynamics and psychopathology. So, uh, uh, we, had a, we had really a very uh, diverse faculty, wonderful people. Uh, Sylvain Arietti and uh, William Silverberg and uh, Irv Bieber and, and um, Walter Bonim.
0: I mean, just a, uh, really a, a wonderful group of, uh, of teachers. And you needed to have your own analysis at that time? I did, and I, I, I uh, uh, chose uh, Irv Bieber
1: as my training analyst. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine who was at the going to the Institute uh, said to me uh, well of all the faculty members I would call Irv Bieber the intellectual lion mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, those are the words he used. And I, and I wanted somebody smart and I wanted somebody seasoned
0: and, uh, and so I chose Irv. Mm-hmm. And he was all that. And how often did you go for analysis, and where was his office?
1: His office was on 72nd in Lexington. Mm -hmm. It was in his apartment. And uh, I went uh, three mornings a week, sometimes four, but mostly three. My sessions were at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'd have a cup of coffee at the drugstore across the street from Irv's office, and it had a a coffee counter. Drugstores in those days often had, you know, little luncheonette or coffee counters. And every morning i go in, and there would be uh, former Governor Tom Dewey, you know, in his derby. And uh, he'd walk in, have a cup of coffee at the counter, and everybody would say, Good morning, Governor! And you know, uh, the, There's some other... He ran for
0: President of the United States. Yes,
1: yeah. yes, mm-hmm. yeah, but before this, uh-huh. before that. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, I'd go up, I'd walk up from uh, my apartment, which was down uh, near the medical center at Cornell, 69th in New York, and I'd walk up to Lexington and 72nd, three days, three mornings a week. And, uh, yeah, that was my analysis from from 1963 to 1968.
0: Mm-hmm. And ha- how often would you go for analysis? Three times Three a week, times okay. a week, and yeah. how long? With the analysis five years I think. and you were treating patients in, in analysis as control cases.
1: Yes we, after, after we were we were uh, your analyst could uh, after one year of training analysis then could authorize you to start a control cases uh, if you felt you were ready and mm-hmm. uh, I was ready and I did three control cases uh, patients three times a week. And these were supervised? uh... Supervised, yeah. Um, My first supervisor was Marv Drellick. Uh, My second one was Paul Dintz, and the third was Ian Alger. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were each quite different from one another, but I learned a lot from each of them. They were wonderful teachers.
0: And how did you uh, become involved with the American Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry? Well, um, I recall
1: I think it was during uh, during um, uh, my residency, uh, going to a meeting of the Academy. Perhaps it was because uh, Larry Hatter may have uh, invited me. And I recall it it stands out in my mind to this day. Sean Dorado and Franz Alexander were discussing uh, a case or presentation. They were both up on the uh, podium. And I'll never forget the spirited, animated, emotional uh, interaction between those two. It was amazing. Uh, both wild Hungarian analysts, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, that was my first uh, brush with the academy, and uh, very, imp- uh, very impressive. And uh, and then during my analytic training, I would go to meetings, because the uh, the institute, our institute, was sort of loosely affiliated with the Academy, even though the Academy does not certify institutes or have a formal affiliation with institutes, but I would go to the meetings. I also went to meetings of the, uh, of the American, but I found the meetings of the Academy were much more informal, uh, uh, less rigid, less, uh, you know, there was just a more of a a family uh, warm atmosphere, you know, you would say,
0: yeah. You yeah. mentioned uh, hearing and being influenced by Franz Alexander. Yeah. He, he was one of the leaders in psychosomatic yes. medicine. Did yeah. this? Did he influence you to go in that direction? No, not Franz Alexander per se. But uh, you know, when I finished my
1: residency, I uh, took a, uh, uh, a half time job at the Rockefeller Institute uh, on one of the research units uh, uh, with uh, Jules Hirsch, who was studying uh, obesity. And I was kind of like a psychiatric consultant there uh, for the patients that he was studying, uh, and I taught also at, at Cornell at Payne Whitney. I was a supervisor, and but my but so my early research was in obesity, and then I got interested in the behavior of obesity, and, and we did a number of studies. I stayed at Rockefeller from '63 until '67, and actually I, became, I really became I was there. Uh, as a as a research investigator, I had my own lab, and uh, of course that's where I became began interest became interested in psychosomatic work, and then I taught on the uh, consultation liaison service at Cornell, and I became in 1968
0: I became the chief of liaison psychiatry at Cornell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So during this time, you were becoming active in the Academy yes uh, yeah. what kind of things did you do in the Academy well I basically at, at that time I uh, still in my,
1: my training a training analysis uh, I, I would just attend meetings uh, I was not a, you know an officer or anything but I would go to meetings and and um, I became very interested I think i be, I think I made my maybe my first presentation actually was on the dynamics of obesity at, at one of the Academy
0: meetings maybe in the late 60s mm-hmm. yeah do you recall what the thesis of your presentation was? No, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't. Okay. And then you became uh, more and more active and uh, ultimately became an officer in the academy? Yeah. Uh,
1: uh, I became more active. Um, I joined the uh, Committee on Programs. Ian Alger was the chairman of the committee. On, he was the first chairman of the Committee on Programs, and, um, and I became... Uh, um, Purdean uh, was a supervisor of mine and later became a, a very good friend. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I became active in, in the program committee. And then I, in the 70s, uh, I began giving more papers. Um, and again, it was, uh, I, you know, I, I had moved up to Connecticut and was practicing in Connecticut at that time and teaching at Yale. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some research at Yale part time. Uh, I got interested in biofeedback, mm-hmm. and uh, I was doing research in biofeedback. I gave some papers in biofeedback at the academy. Those were, that was in the, I think, in the early 70s, mid-70s. Uh, so I was very
0: involved in, in, uh, in psychosomatic work. Uh, and then in uh, 1988, you became president of the academy. Well, let's back up a little bit okay. before that. Uh, in 1982, Ian um,
1: uh, left his position as uh, chairman of the program committee and I was appointed chairman uh, of the program committee for the uh-huh. academy. And that's basically 1982 that's where I became, really became very involved in the academy as chairman of the committee on programs and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know the, the, then I was responsible with of course my committee members you know, for the we had semi, semi-annual meetings. Then we had a winter meeting and, uh, um, and uh, an annual meeting in May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would uh, choose uh, uh, the locales along with Vivian Mendelson, who was our executive secretary and administrator. And. Uh we had some very interesting, exciting meetings, and I then I, I instituted um, uh, the uh, symposia. We had a number of different symposiums uh, uh, on different topics.
0: One day, one and day, one and two day symposia. This was at the time of the meeting, or no, at, no, at other times. times of the year. Uh-huh. Yes, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Do you recall any of the topics? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there, we had
1: topics. Uh, one was on dreaming. That's when I first became. I was first interested in dreams around nineteen eighty-eight. It was in Philadelphia. It was a dream symposium, and actually, I co-edited a book with Silas Warner, another member of the academy, on dreams that grew out of that symposium. We had other symposia on uh, women's uh, the women's movement, on men's identity, on money and and uh, analysis. Uh, Oh. uh, 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 problems in the workplace, uh, a number of different symposia that were very well attended and very popular Mm -hmm. at that time. And then I also began the travel uh, 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 study tour programs in which uh, uh, we went overseas. We went to China, we went to Japan, um, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, where we would Members of the academy would, as a group, go to a different country, and uh, then visit psychiatric facilities and mm-hmm. have meetings with other analysts in those countries. And those,
0: uh, and uh, I led a group to China in, in 1984, just after it had opened up. Uh, Were, was there interest in psychodynamics in China at that time? There was. Uh, that there, there was. There
1: there was. We. The the, the the hospitals that we visited, of course, were uh, the treatment was very much biological, ph- pharmacologic, but but also very very uh, uh, group and community oriented. Being China, was you know uh, uh, a lot of work therapy and so forth. But they were interested in, in individual therapy. They 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 uh, they didn't know anything about it. It was not done at that time in China. But they were very interested in it. Um, and I actually I gave some lectures uh, in China on my biofeedback research. Um, one one anecdote is uh, in uh, at the uh, medical school in Xian, uh, China. Uh, you know that's the t- city where all, the the worry they discovered all these warriors right. warrior. mm-hmm. uh, anyhow. Uh, I was giving a lecture and I I was giving an example of of desensitizing a a patient who was phobic of different foods and I present her foods in the laboratory and we'd measure her blood pressure and heart rate and galvanic skin resistance and so forth and really document her, her becoming less and less anxious and phobic, you know, physiologically. And I threw up a slide, I had brought slides and without thinking I put up a slide. And the heading of the sun slide was rice phobia. <laughs> of course, I had a translator. And the translator, you know, said right, and I immediately realized, my God, this would be like having a hamburger phobia in America or <laughs> French fries, <laughs> and everybody in the audience laughed. They couldn't get over that that somebody would have a rice phobia. Yeah, but it was it was very. I, I, it, it, we met Chinese psychiatrists and students. They were all very interested in what was going on in in, our, in, in the United States in 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 our field.
0: During your uh, active time as president or working your way towards being president, uh, you were involved when, when the Academy um, had a building in Manhattan. A yes, yes. Well, oh, what I've was heard. the story on that?
1: The story on that was um, when, uh, when I first joined the Academy, we, had, we rented an office near Grand Central Station. It was on 40th Street. Um, I think between Lexington and 3rd, um, I believe that's where it was, but uh, anyhow, uh, uh, that was our office. But we, uh, we, we felt that we wanted a permanent office and one that you know, would have a library and conference rooms where we could hold uh, meetings and so forth. And so there was a search committee. I was on the search committee. Uh, Ian Alger was the head of the, the committee, and we found a space uh, on 19th Street just off Park Avenue between uh, Park and Madison. Uh, it was on, I think, the sixth floor of a building. And uh, we, we had a, a, a fund drive, and we raised. It cost us somewhere in excess of $300,000. this was 1980 maybe 83 84 something like that Uh, it was a whole floor in the building on the sixth floor we uh, purchased it um, purchased the floor yeah yeah it was it was a uh, yeah Um, a condo and co-op and and we um, we paid I think we raised we didn't raise the whole purchase price, but a good part of it, and then we had a mortgage, uh, and we totally uh, remodeled it, and we had a, a beautiful office. It was a, we had a library, you know, conference room, offices. It was it was very nice, and we held that until well, from the mid '80s to. Probably the late 90s. I don't know when we moved, when we finally moved up to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess I, it was never really clear to me why, Why I think, well, I, in retrospect, it was fairly clear. It was financial. We It, it, it was costing a fair amount of money to, to keep it up. And uh, the academy was running short on funds. Why they ultimately gave
0: up the building, but then then they sold it. Right, that was later on. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. But during your presidency, the. Well, during my my tenure as yeah. program chairman and president, we we're, were in that office, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Vivian Mendelson was uh, still our executive secretary, right? Yeah. And what was it like working with uh, the executive secretary at that time? Well,
1: Vivian was uh, uh, very devoted. She was really devoted. The academy was her life, and uh, she was the repository of our history and all the things that you know, business issues and professional issues. <laughs> But the problem was that Vivian had it all in her head. <laughs> and a lot of this stuff was never written down. But anyhow, if you wanted to know anything, you had to ask Vivian. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the the history, uh, you knew many of the of the previous past presidents who are no longer with us. Yes. Is there any particular uh, memories of any of them that you want to oh, state?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, gosh, uh, what can I say? I mean, I looked down the list here and I knew almost everybody. Uh, William Silverberg, I mentioned, he was uh, a mentor of mine. Um, He was one of the founders of our institute and one of the founders of the academy. Jules Masserman, and then uh, Leon Salzman. Leon was quite a character, you know, he was a an expert in OCD wrote the book-huh yeah uh, Judd Marmer uh, Jud Judd was uh, of course past president of the APA and, and uh, Judd was in both the American and the Academy but I think he had a real fondness for the Academy he he was of course uh, for many years the chairman of psychiatry at USC Cedars here in, in Los Angeles Herb Bieber I've mentioned Marianne Eckhart. Uh, Marian is, I think, just turn, turning a hundred, and still active. And still, in the, active. still active. Still uh, uh, active in the academy. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. She was on our faculty at the institute.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: a number of other people. Oh, gosh, I can go down the list. Milt Zafiropoulos, who's still living, and and uh, a wonderful, wonderful person. John Spiegel was uh, very active uh, uh, in the academy, um, and. Uh, uh, Rose Spiegel was another. She uh, she she was not president, but Rose, she was in the uh, at the at the uh, the White Institute and uh, wonderful scholarly person who uh, actually was on that trip to China that I mentioned. She brought along a Polaroid camera, and I never forget Rose. Different places, uh, you know, in Beijing and, and Shanghai, she'd be, take out her Polaroid, and all these Chinese kids would gather <laughs> around her. They were they were. Amazed at how this camera could take a picture, and develop it right on the spot. Uh, so and um, oh, others like uh, Lillian Robinson from uh, uh, New Orleans, wonderful person, and, and, uh, and art, art Epstein also from New Orleans. Art was Art was really a, I would say a, a, a role model for me because Arthur trained at Columbia, uh, went down to Tulane. Uh, as uh, in the Department of Psychiatry and he was very interested in in, in psychosomatic work and uh, n- you know psychoneurobiological you know, neurobiological
0: psychiatry and analysis and uh, a real gentleman wonderful guy you know you you had uh, mentioned once to me about how the Academy came into being how the, the split yes from the yeah. from the uh, Uh, Why 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 don't you tell that, uh, briefly, tell that that history.
1: (laughs) Yeah, of course, I wasn't there at the time, but I've heard a lot about it. And um, it's uh, certainly germane to how the Academy came into being. Uh, In in the early 40s, probably 1941 or so, uh, the New York Psychoanalytic was the only psychoanalytic institute, perhaps in the country, uh, except for maybe the Chicago Chicago Institute. Perhaps San Francisco and LA, but uh, but in, in any event, it was the only psychoanalytic institute in New York, and it was very classically oriented. And, and uh, several of the several of the uh, uh, teachers, uh, faculty members at New York Psychoanalytic, uh, had disagreements uh, um, with the, uh, shall we say, the the. Uh, the theories and doctrines of the of the institute. Uh, 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 Karen Hornay, for example, uh, uh, took umbrage or exception to the fact that women had a masochistic position in relationship to men, and, and uh, Clara Thompson uh, was interested in relationships and not so much the intra-psychic, but rather the interpersonal and. So on and so forth. Uh, 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 uh had problems with instinct theory. Anyhow, there was a rebellion in a sense, and they broke away from the New York psychoanalytic, and they went on to form the other institutes that exist to this day in New York. Our institute was formed. We were the first institute That's to be n- New York, medical, New York College. medical College. We were the first institute to be a part of a department of psychiatry mm-hmm. in a medical school. Uh, William Silverberg was one of our founders, and uh, um, John Millett, um, Irv Bieber, um, early members, Walter Bodine And uh, Clara Thompson went on to form William Allenson White, uh, Shonda Rado, the Columbia Institute, Karen Horney, the Horney Institute. That's how they all formed. Now, they broke away from New York Psychoanalytic. And with that, they felt that they were, uh, uh, of course, the American psychoanalytic was the umbrella psychoanalytic organization in, in, in this country. And, uh, and they certified or licensed the institutes, including New York psychoanalytic. Well, these people have broken away. They were now persona non grata at the American psychoanalytic. And they wanted to form their own national psychoanalytic organization. And they wanted it to be eclectic, non-doctrinaire, open to all new ideas, or at least responsible, uh, you know, theories and practices in the analytic field. It was a real cha- sea change, and they they really wanted fresh air, so to speak, in terms of analytic theory and, and practice. So they formed the Academy. It was formed in ni- 1956. Uh, the founding members, I think I mentioned some of them, uh, um, uh, Silverberg and uh, Judd Marmer and uh, Harold Leif and Roy Grinker Shonda Dorado, Franz Alexander I mean these were these were really heavyweights in the uh, in psychoanalysis at that time in the country and uh, so they formed the academy and part of our still part of our charter part of our constitution if you will is that it's an organization a national psychoanalytic organization devoted to furthering theory and practice, non-doctrinaire, accepting ideas, all responsible ideas, focus on research uh, in the field, um, and inviting people from other disciplines. It was, and of course, uh, still is, medical. Uh, It was, uh, of course, again, you have to understand at that time, everybody who was an analyst was an MD. That's not the case now. Uh, but at that time it was, and it and 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 so the academy certainly had. Uh, speaking of history, uh, not too long ago we had quite a a vigorous uh, discussion or debate about whether to uh, have non-MD fellows in the academy, um, and uh, that was uh, voted down. We do have scientific. Associates and others who were non-MDs, who were uh, either who were analysts or made contributions to the field, but the belief was and still is that uh, this is a a uh, uh, that psychoanalytic or uh, psychiatry, psychodynamic psychiatry, um, uh, is a meaningful medical subdiscipline in medicine, and uh, so that so that that's really uh, how it came into being and what it is now, still.
0: What about the decision to accept members who did not have formal psychoanalytic training, but yet had taken courses and special interests? Oh, yeah. Well, we had,
1: we... we Psychodynamics. Yeah, that that was, while I was... uh, That was a significant uh, event. Yes, that was... uh, I forget what year that was. I, I think it was before I was president. But I was on the committee, I think I was on the... I uh, forget what committee it was, well, the education What was the, thinking? What the was thinking? The thinking was that, that there were people who um, certainly were interested in dynamic psychiatry and psychoanalytic work, who had taken training, maybe had not totally finished their training for one reason or another, but, but were practicing analytic uh, work, uh, psychiatry or analytically-oriented uh, therapy, and or had made contributions to the field in terms of teaching and research, and that uh, who wanted to be a part of a an organization and uh, to be members and to, to contribute. And so we set up a uh, an equivalency, basically, uh, I guess, kind of like high school equivalency type of thing that we looked at their credentials, and uh, and still do. Uh, and, uh, and we if, if it's if it's thought that they have had a sufficient amount of training and uh, um, both clinical and uh, academic that uh,
0: that they can be granted uh, fellowship, yeah. Mm-hmm. If they're MDS, right? Yeah. Uh, in regard to your work, I know you've done a great deal of work in dreams. How did that come about? <laughs> um,
1: it came about. Well, I've always been interested in dreams, basically because uh, Walter Bonim, who is one of, as I mentioned, one of my mentors, teachers uh, uh, and published what still, I think, is a classical book, uh, The Clinical Use of Dreams. Um, he influenced me a lot about dreams uh, and uh, their use in, in treatment and in therapy. Uh, and then I, I, uh, When I was program chairman, I sponsored a symposium on dreams. It was in Philadelphia, I think in the late 80s. And uh, Silas Warner, Cy Warner, who was a member of the academy from Philadelphia, was my uh, co-chairman of that uh, symposium. And it was a two-day symposium on dreams. We had, you know, many of the dream experts from around the country come and speak. And Cy uh, and I pu- published or co-edited a book uh, called Dreaming the Royal Road, uh, uh, Dreams, in pers- dreaming in, or Dreams in Perspective, A New Perspective, The Royal Road Revisited. And yeah, we published it on, uh, back in the 88 based on that symposium. And from then on, I really began to uh,
0: um,
1: Get involved in clinical research and you dreams. have a
0: more recent book on dreams uh, also i published
1: a i published a book in 2007 dreaming an opportunity for mm-hmm. change yeah mm-hmm. and for the past oh 10 12 years i've been working with milton kramer mm-hmm. uh milton also also a member of the academy a fellow of the academy milton uh, had a sleep and dream lab at the University of Cincinnati in the Department of Psychiatry for many years, and he, he, he made many significant contributions to the field. And uh, he and I have been collaborators uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: on, on g now about four or five, six papers we've done on mm-hmm. dreams.
0: Have your ideas and writings uh, been uh, radically different from Freud's thoughts on dreams? Radically different, or have, have they, how have they been? Are they different, or how have they been different? Yes, yes. Well, yes and no.
1: I uh, uh, first of all, you know, Freud, of course, was a genius, and and uh, if it weren't for Freud, I don't think we would have paid, or our field would have paid, the kind of attention it has to dreaming and the meaning of dreams or the, the function of dreaming. But. Um, I pay uh, 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 I pay much more attention to manifest content, and Milton I because for one reason it's it's uh, it lends itself more to research to to be objective about dreams and the content of dreams. Uh, there's there's you can't argue with you know the imagery the manifest imagery of a dream. It's you know, and you can look at it and objectify it and rate it much more easily than latent content which of course is dependent on the person's associate the dreamers associations but I still use and and rely on latent content and in that sense of course um, that's based on Freud's uh, discovery of the meaning of latent content
0: has modern science and uh, research in dreams uh, changed uh, our understanding of dreams oh
1: yes yeah I think with the advent of sleep laboratories and, and looking at dreams and sleep over the last 50-60 years uh, it absolutely has changed our understanding. We, we, we know now that dreams serve uh, vital functions uh, that we, we couldn't function basically without dreams. Uh, we know that dreams are involved with uh, memory processing, problem-solving, learning, uh, you know that, that uh, uh, they're just they're they're necessary they're necessary just for for mental homeostasis and you you know there's research that if you deprive a person of their REM sleep of their dreams that they can become totally disorganized and even psychotic so we know that 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 dreams are are essential for our mental well-being now Freud thought that too but Freud he didn't have the advantage, you know, of the sleep research that, that, that we've
0: had or the technology, but he, but he felt that they were essential too, but for different reasons. Yeah. Well, he, he may not have seen uh, the future of research, but uh, as we now look towards the future of our profession, do you yeah. have any thoughts about any important issues that have to be dealt with or any predictions for the future? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs>
1: Uh I could divide that up into different areas. One would be clinical practice, the other would be research, uh, and the other and the third would be education. But let me talk let me talk first about practice. Uh, I think there's been a, an enormous change in, in the way we practice psychiatry now, of course, uh, you know it'd be redundant for me to, to go into that but but uh, uh, of course the focus has been a lot more on pharmacological interventions and much of it for the good uh, but I think it's taken away from our our emphasis and, and uh, focus on human the human psyche and mentation and mindfulness and so forth
0: and and I think that's that's been a detriment. Do you think uh, interest in psychodynamics is going to continue in the future? I think interest in psychodynamics will continue because as long as people
1: are treating people and, and, and talking to them, they've got to have some sort of okay. framework to understand that. Okay, So I don't think you can escape that. It may take different forms. And I think in that sense, analysis has changed. I think psychoanalysis is a very, to, to me, it's a very evolving, changing field, Uh, uh, you know, look, back in the 1940s and 50s, it was four or five times a week on the couch. And the analyst had a neutral, uh, you know, stance and didn't say much. I mean, and and now uh, we do analysis sitting up and it can be once a week, twice a week, Uh, there's much more involvement, it's much more interpersonal. So that that that's changed, and it will continue to change. Our definition of an I think of analysis of psychoanalysis has changed because of that. That's one thing. Uh, And but by the way, that touches on education, I think that uh, uh, our institutes and the way we train analysts has to change. Uh, The majority of analytic candidates now are not MDs. Residents just don't go into analysis too long too expensive their training has not emphasized it like it did for for me, for you, perhaps. Um, So we need to change uh, the way we educate uh, psychiatrists and those who are interested in dynamic work. I think that has to be much more incorporated into residency training. That's what I tried to do at New York Medical College, as you know, and even in our own institute to... to, to, uh, uh, institute, uh, you know, a two-year course in psychodynamic psychotherapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Uh, residents will do that now. They have they, they will take the time to do that. But uh, whereas uh, they're reluctant to devote years and
0: and and uh, hours and money and so forth to taking analytic training. So, are you optimistic about our profession for the future?
1: <laughs> uh, not as we've known it. Not as we know. I think it's going to it's going to change. As I said, there's going to be a place for psychodynamic psychiatry, and I'm, i guess, you know, we changed the name of our journal to emphasize that. Uh, and I think it's going to be much more psychodynamic rather than psychoanalytic in the in the sense that we've known psychoanalysis. But I am optimistic that there's always going to be a place you know for that kind of work to under to work with the mind and 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 mentation and and the what I think is the most important thing is the is the relationship between analyst and patient therapist and patient that that therapeutic relationship which i've also written about and talked about
0: well any other thoughts that you want to uh, mention (laughs) before we conclude i think the academy has been a real force
1: in um, psychoanalysis in in our country Um, and and perhaps uh, in other parts of the world because we have international members as well and we've held meetings in other countries. But but I I think that uh, Um, As it has been, it will continue to be at the forefront of thinking uh, uh, in in analytic and psychodynamic psychiatric work, research and teaching, clinical work. I think it it, it does have a place and will have a place. In terms of its medical orientation, um, I'm one of those who believes that um, we should be identified as physicians, and says uh, physician's interested in, in psychodynamic work with, with patients. But I also think that non-physicians have a, a, a lot to contribute. And uh, I hope that they will have a, a more of a presence in the academy without us losing our medical identity as the American psychoanalytic has. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, yes, I, I, uh, I'm a firm believer in in uh, the future of psychoanalysis and the future of the academy.
0: Okay, well, thank you very much. uh, Buddy Glucksman, 34th President of the American Academy of Psychoanalysis and Dynamic Psychiatry. Thank you, Mike. This concludes today's podcast. Your comments are always welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com That's m-b-l-u-m-e-n-f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com This is Dr. Michael Bluenfield wishing you a pleasant day.